The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. I was reminiscing with my parents this week, thinking about some of my earliest Christmas memories, some of my earliest memories. We went, many of you know, to the mission field when I was, I think, about seven years old. I don't remember much before that. I remember certain things about our first year there. I don't remember a lot of things from church in my early years, but there was one Sunday that I will never forget that I was reminiscing with my parents about. It's like nothing I've ever seen here in the United States. I was seven years old at the time, so kids, I want you to Try to imagine this scene. It was at the end of church, and there were some new Christians. And and to give you a little bit of context, in the Philippines, there's a lot of belief in spirits and sorcery. There's a lot of spiritual warfare. Even some in our church in those years who were saved would still, for a time, be troubled by demons and things from their past. But this Sunday, there was a new family of believers, and at the end of the service, they brought up their idols, their pagan statues. They, they'd covered them with, with bags, and the pastor called them forward, and the pastor called the deacons forward, and they were carrying sledgehammers. And this family wanted to not just throw these idols away, they wanted, with accountability of their church, to say, we're done with these, we are Smashing. That's exactly what the guys did. They smashed those idols. They, and I was a kid. I'd never seen anything like this in church before. This had my attention. They were all taking a swing and, and smashing. And you could see some of the little pieces scattering out from, from under the bags. And, and each take, took a turn and they just kept hammering it and, and smashing it. And it was, it was to visualize that they're, they're demolishing their old life. It was like breaking the power of canceled sin. It was like saying, we're going to be free of this now, and it's, it's not going to be in our life anymore. And the church sang the hymn at the end of that, there is power in the blood. I mean, I'll never forget that, because what we saw was those gods are nothing, and there is nothing left there for you to turn back to. After our service today, we're going to be reaffirming deacons and pastors and elders. I don't know that we should add that to their job description. We're not going to do that here at the end here today. But I want to reaffirm today the wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. It's power that can free us. And that's where our study in Exodus is going. If you would be turning in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, God has been working his his wonderful power and his wonders and signs against Egypt in, in these plagues that, that demonstrate his might. And he's going to set Israel free soon through the blood of the Lamb, through the blood of the Lamb and the Passover. And they're going to sing after that. But he's bringing down the hammer in this passage. I want us to see he's bringing down the hammer on the gods of Egypt, the false deities. That's what these ten plagues are, are doing. He's showing their occult magicians that their power is broken. He is crushing their idols before them. He is smashing Pharaoh's false religion to pieces, and then he's going to take it out with the trash. These ten plagues are showing publicly for people to see with their eyes that these false deities are nothing, and they're going to be demolished 
so that God's people will not turn back to them, so that God's people won't be tempted to trust them ever again or anything like him. And, and, and we know this was a big thing for them because later in the story, they're going to turn back and make a golden calf, which was one of the gods of Egypt. There are all kinds of cow and calf gods in Egypt. But in Exodus 32 is where that story is. Moses is going to crush that. He's going to grind it to pieces. He's going to make them drink it so that they can taste how bad and how bitter idolatry is. But he comes to Egypt and he has this confrontation with the magicians of Pharaoh. Here's what one poem imagines the magician said to Moses at the start. You think you've got friends in high places with the power to put us Egyptians on the run. But you'll know what power is when we're done. Son, some of you kids know the song. What, what movie is that from, kids? Prince of Egypt. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, we're going to be looking at the counterfeit gods then and now. But in the Prince of Egypt story, the, the, they, they actually list the gods of Egypt. They say, by the power of Ra, those magicians. And they go through all the different gods. And we're going to see how some of those intersect with our passage here today. But we're going to see the counterfeit gods then and now, the call to truly worship God alone. We're going to see in this passage, here's those guys, how that movie portrays it. And they're calling on the powers of their false gods to confront him. Well, let's pick up our study in Exodus 8. God has already given a powerful visual. We saw last time. He cancels out the sorcerers and their tricks with that snake, remember? That greater serpent that devours them. And so there's nothing left there. Their, their serpents are not only killed, they're, 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 eat, they're not only beaten, they're eaten and they're defeated and there's nothing left. God's showing his power. And then that same staff, they pick it up and it becomes the staff again. And that staff the next day strikes the water and the whole Nile turns to blood, and, and then we need to understand Egypt's gods supposedly controlled the river, and, and they were supposed to keep order in Egypt. In fact, that was one of Pharaoh's jobs. He was actually a god who was supposedly in touch with all of those gods, and, and it was his job to keep the ma'at, the order, things going well in Egypt. But the true Lord is, is showing him and showing them I am God and you are not. And he's hammering it home with the first plague and the second plague and the next plague. I am God. Those are not gods. I alone am God. And after those first three plagues and those blows that come, the sorcerers of Egypt see and say that this is God. Look at chapter 8 and verse 18, where they can't duplicate God's power over nature. Verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They have a little council of Pharaoh, and they say, Pharaoh, this is God. This is God's finger. And the implication maybe of the finger is there's more to come. His hand hasn't even come yet. This is God's finger. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go 
that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your homes. And the houses of all the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. The ground's going to be caked with flies. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign will happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh, and into his servants' houses. Notice it starts there. It, it starts at the top, and then it works its way down. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. I mean, within, within the land of Egypt. But Moses said it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? See, they, they worshipped many of these animals that they would be sacrificing. And so he says this, We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead. For me, he says, pray to this God for me. And we need to see the counterfeit gods then and now. We need to see the call to worship God truly and God and God alone. Because what's going on in, in the passage and last week as well, these sorcerers had counterfeited two of the signs of God's plagues. But in chapter 8 and verse 18, they try and they can't. And they confess. His magicians confess this is God. God has been putting his finger on their false religion. And he says in chapter 12, verse 12, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. At the end of this, he's saying, I'm, I'm judging all the gods of Egypt. He's crushing what they are trusting in. And what some of the Israelites were trusting in and would be tempted to. And he does all this so that Israel will sing in chapter 15, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The answer is no one and nothing. There is nothing that compare to him. There is no one that can compare to this God. And this is for our worship, too. This is written for us, that we would trust God alone that we would not turn to whatever is false, that we would root out anything in our life, that we would crush anything that comes between us and God. See, this isn't just about back then. This isn't just about magicians and Moses. This applies to us now and to Christians. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, he warns about the false religious who will reject the power that could make them godly. They'll reject that power, and it says these teachers oppose the truth, these false teachers oppose the truth just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses. Those are those two chief magicians. Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, they have a counterfeit faith. 
Paul says, but everyone will recognize their folly. They'll see what fools they are, just as with Janus and Jambres. So these magicians were shown to be fools in the story. These magicians opposing Moses, their folly would be evident to all, along with their counterfeit gods. And by chapter 11, everyone in Egypt recognizes what a fool Pharaoh is and all of his phony gods. And they come bowing and begging that these people get out from their midst. This is Pharaoh who was supposed to be the intermediary between gods and men. That was one of his jobs. He was the the mediator, the go-between between the gods and men. And in fact, Pharaoh tried to counterfeit God on many levels. And this has been well documented in the historical. There's been a lot of research on the pharaohs. They, they had people bow down to them. They had people worship them. One of the titles they took for themselves was the Lord and God, very same language that's used here. Even in the narrative, he says, thus says Pharaoh, after he hears, thus says Yahweh the Lord. He held a staff that was supposed to show his sovereignty and his supremacy. That was what it symbolized. His official title was Son of Ra. That was their great sun god, the most high god above. He's the son of the most high god. And they actually believed Pharaoh was the incarnation of their god. So this is a counterfeit of what we're celebrating here at Christmas, the incarnation of of the true god, the true son of the most high who became man. That's what they were Worshiping, it's like Satan even knowing the prophecies is anticipating and imitating and corrupting and copying. He's a, he's a knockoff artist. He's the Antichrist even before Christ came. But look at chapter 8, verse 8. Pharaoh asks Moses to plead with the true Lord to take away the plague. And he has to do that because his gods and his guys can't. So he begs Moses to pray to Yahweh, that's the Hebrew for Lord in in all capital letters. One of the things we know from history is pharaohs would go down to the river in the morning to worship their gods. This was common, to worship the gods of the Nile. And in chapter 8, verse 20, the true God tells Moses, go early in the morning and meet Pharaoh there as he goes to the water. And it's there that you're going to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go so that they can serve, that they can worship me. Not Pharaoh. Not the false gods. This is where God had Moses first confront Pharaoh in chapter 7. Same time, same place at the river where he turned it to blood and the fish died. There's some interesting things you can... the, The Nile was kind of so essential to every aspect of Egypt. And you can imagine the Nile turning to blood. What kind of impact is the fish die? And and there's a book by John Davis called Moses and the Gods of Egypt. And he he talks about some of their gods. The great Khnum was considered the guardian of the the Nile's sources. There was this god, Happy or Hoppy, who was believed to be the spirit of the Nile. This one is especially worshipped. One of the greatest male gods revered in Egypt was the god Osiris there. And they actually believed that the Nile was his bloodstream. He was like the god of the the underworld. And and the Nile is like it flowed out from him. 
But here the true God comes and he takes that Nile and he turns it into blood. And Hoppy is not very happy, is he? <laughs> or she. It's, it's kind of like counterfeit money. These counterfeit deities are shown to be worthless. You come and you bring monopoly money to some store. They're going to say, that's, that's worthless. That's what this, their gods are like monopoly money. The Nile was their economy. It was their prosperity. It was their security. So, so think about that. This is what they thought life was all about. This is what gave meaning to everything. For centuries, the Egyptians praised Hapi as the giver of life. That's what they called her, the Lord of sustenance, the one who sustains everything, the one who causes the whole land to live through his provisions. They sang this, Hapi, who goes up from the land, who comes to deliver Egypt. So again, that's another counterfeit of God. Who brings food, who is abundant of provisions, who creates every sort of good thing. Everything that has come into being is through his power. Where's his power now in chapter 8? It's like holding up a counterfeit bill to the, to the light. It's something even looks like the real thing, but you hold it up and there's, there's not that mark of authenticity. There's not that water seal that shows this is the real thing. These gods, when they're held up to the light of who God is, are shown to be phony. And it's possible that Pharaoh was singing that hymn of thanksgiving that morning. It's possible his worship is being interrupted by Moses. And you can just imagine after those three plagues, when he sees Moses coming, he's, he's probably cursing in whatever curse words they had back then. He's not happy to see this guy. He's interrupting his worship. He's coming to give a true word from the true giver of life. The Lord who is announcing that he's going to deliver from Egypt. And all those things that you think your gods do, I'm showing you they can't do any of that. Moses had written earlier in Genesis 22, the true God is the Jehovah Jireh, the Yahweh who provides all of our needs. But let's think about not just then, but now. Tony Merida applies then to now. To whom are you looking to provide for your needs? Maybe you've never heard of these Egyptian river gods, but people are still tempted to trust in things to provide for them. Instead of God alone, many place their final hope in things of this world. Maybe it's in the stock market, or maybe it's in economic growth changing, or maybe it's in a new president, or something else. All of these will pass away. It, it, it's okay to hope. It's okay to pray. It's, it's, it's good to vote and be involved in all those things, to try to be wise with our money and all of that, but that can't be our hope. That can't be what we ultimately trust in. Our, our dollar bills say, in God we trust on them. But for a lot of Americans, I think they trust in money as their God, as the dollar as their God that they trust in. Whatever you most prize in biblical language is what you idolize. The things you supremely prize what you think life is all about, if it's different than God. If you think something else gives it meaning and security besides God, when you focus on those things, when you look to something else, 
ultimately to make you happy. That's the modern version of the God Hoppy. Phil Riken explains it this way. The average American is not very different from the ancient Egyptian. We still worship these same gods. They've just got different names. What we count on, what matters most to most people is economic prosperity or security. We depend on finances as much as the Egyptians depended on theirs. They worship the Nile. Some people follow the NASDAQ. Rather than trusting in God alone, we depend on how things are going, other things. It's, he also says the Egyptians praise the river as their creator. You have many Americans believing that we came from a random stream of genetic material. And so from evolution to Earth Day, from Mother Nature to materialism, naturalism, or any of those things, there's just new names on things that have been around for a long time. This is the scene where those things begin to be dismantled. And the banks of that river are also the scene for the second plague as frogs come up the banks of the river in swarms. We saw that last time, but there was also a particular god named Hecht or Hecate, the goddess of frogs and fertility, childbirth. Egypt worshipped frogs. I mentioned last week they, there were laws against killing them, even accidentally. And so they've got all these frogs and they can't kill any of them. I mean, it's, it's somewhat humorous. It's humiliating to their gods. This goddess supposedly married the god who, who guarded the Nile from the one before. She had this frog head and the, the hieroglyphics and the paintings, and she was connected to conception and midwives. And there seems like there's probably a connection with the, where the story started. Remember, it was the midwives who Pharaoh told to, to kill the babies when they were born. And then when that didn't happen, he had them what, thrown in the where? thrown in the Nile. And so God remembered that. God remembers that. And he's going to bring judgment for that. It was on the banks of the Nile that Moses was rescued by God through the daughter of the king. Another irony. While Egypt's gods can't rescue them from frogs. Their gods can't even make the frogs go in a different direction. They couldn't kill frogs as sacred animals. God is making what they worship croak or not croak. He's making them stink as they die. There's a stench. Israel said, we're a stench in Pharaoh's nostrils. Now there's a massive stench in Pharaoh's palace and all over the place. This is the goddess they worship to control childbirth. And so they worshiped Hecht, there's ways moderns can worship health, different names. But under the name of health, under the name of health care today is the sovereign choice that people take upon themselves of life and death today, the place that only God should have. When something takes the place that only God should have, that is a God. Our world has laws against killing animals but not against killing unborn humans. There's many ways that the creator can be replaced by creatures. 
or climate or control. Control can be a God, just wanting to be in control. People want to be in control of things that are out of their control that only God does. And so in chapter 8, God is turning creation and he's turning creatures against man and he's showing you're not in control. I am. We need to know that too. We think we can control things. We're not. We need to give up that grasp for control because we're not. And God will go to any length to show that. In chapter 8, verse 9, Moses tells Pharaoh, basically, say when. I'll, I'll let you tell me when we'll take this away. And I think of a Western movie, Showdown, where they're, they're coming after the bad guys and they're going to come after them one by one. I'm coming, God is saying. And look at chapter 8, verse 21. And he's going again after another bad God, if you will, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you. He's speaking to Pharaoh. There's going to be swarms on you, Pharaoh, and on your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, also the ground in which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies will be there so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I am. You're not. It's not about you. It's about Yahweh over all the earth. I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Not their God, Gabe, G-E-B, their earth God, who was supposedly in their midst, or Geb, maybe. James Boyce asks, where was he to protect the land, this Gabe, and keep it from producing the insects that brought such trouble for the people? He says a literal translation is that swarms of other insects came over the land. So maybe flies and other things as well. We don't have insects swarming here like other parts of the world do, especially near water. But in the land that I grew up in, in the Philippines, insects swarm. In the tropics, in a lot of places, it's like that. I, I remember as a kid, sometimes there would be these, and there's a bunch of bugs swarming right over my head. I think washing your hair had something to, to do with that. But you, you just bugs, they get attracted by all kinds of things. Mosquitoes could just drive you crazy if you don't have screens or some way to keep them away. They're just, they're just eating you alive. I remember one time even at family camp here, there were these bugs and they just kept like flying at me and attacking my, my neck. It seemed like they were just all over the place. And, but here, these are not just a small amount of, of bugs. This is a massive amount of bugs. But I remember you, when you're in a place where there's a lot of bugs, you, you have to be careful. I remember riding bikes in our Philippines neighborhood. I learned you don't open your mouth and yell something to your friend when you're riding through certain areas because you just get a mouthful of bugs. They're just all over the place. And imagine this. They're just all over, and you can't even hardly talk because if you talk, they go in your mouth or up your nose. or It's just gross. And in Egypt, there's these flying, biting insects everywhere. They don't have any screens back then. They don't have any spray, probably, to keep them away. Just imagine those flies. A few of us in this church went down to Mexico five years ago to that mission, that orphanage, where we give those presents. And one of the things we did is we went to the dump there. And there were people there that we were singing to, giving food to, giving tracts to. 
but there were flies all over the place. And we, we realized that when we got back, back in our van, so did a whole bunch of those flies. And they were just swarming, flying around. And it seems like they're stuck to the walls and the ceiling. And we can't, we can't get them off. And there's screaming going on. And just imagine there's a lot of that going on in Egypt. But we're driving. we got the windows open, the back door. And we're just trying to, to get them out. But imagine if you couldn't get rid of them. There's no way you can get rid of them. That's what's going on here. I mean, I, I, I can get so distracted just by one fly. I mean, if there's a fly, I, I'm trying to study or trying to sleep, and there's a, a bug in the room. I mean, it, doesn't it drive you crazy? It does me. But these are swarms of flies, and they start on Pharaoh and then on his servants and all over the land. And, and it's, like they're, it's like you can't even walk without the crunching of these bugs in the land except for Goshen. And Goshen, just across the water, there's this land. If you could have been from a distance, you'd see like these swarms, these dark clouds over most of Egypt. But then there's this part of Egypt where there's nothing. And if you were to go there, there's no flies. It's like all the flies in the world all came to this one place, but they're not going across this line. There's no one over in Goshen having to shoo flies so they don't bother them. But there's nothing anyone in Egypt can do to get them to go away, to swat them away. Some of these possibilities of what these were were dog flies that actually bite and suck blood in that part of the world. They're one of the worst kinds of flies, but there's something even worse behind this. It's interesting that Moses doesn't name even the Pharaoh. He doesn't name the gods here. But there was an Egyptian lord of the flies, and also this, some of these gods got carried over in later history, in Canaan, Greco-Roman culture as well. And one of the names that the lord of the flies went by was Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, depending on your translation. Different, different names for the lord of the flies. And this is what they said of Jesus When he came and he was casting out demons, they said, Behold, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Jesus asks them, If Satan is divided against himself, how will his house stand? How will his kingdom stand? But then he says this, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Isn't that interesting? Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies, became a, a title for the prince of demons. Even then they learned there's, there's more than just these gods. There's actually the, the, the one that Paul calls the lowercase, God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, deceiving the minds, blinding the minds of unbelievers. It's a false god, but Satan and his kingdom is... Involved here, Second Thessalonians 2.9, the work of Satan is displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. This has been going on a long time. Satan can't create, but he can imitate. He corrupts. He counterfeits what God does. But Jesus says it's by the finger of God that he is cast out. Same phrase they used back in Egypt when their demonic powers fail. They say, this is the finger of God. And it was interesting to read in, in Egyptian myth when the god Thoth or Thoth stopped the snake god 
They said, it is the finger of God. We have that in their writings. They called it the finger of God. That's what these Egyptians say in chapter 8, verse 19. That God, Thoth, by the way, was associated with magic and judgment. But God is judging the magicians of Egypt. And they, those magicians, tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, this is the real thing. This is the real thing. The Lord is crushing idols. And he's crushing the serpent behind false religion. Last month was the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. One of the amazing discoveries in that land. And the, you've all seen that golden face with the blue and the lines. And he's holding staffs and there's serpents. There's a serpent on his head, probably the most famous golden serpent. We looked at that last time. Pharaohs wore these serpents on their crowns. But there was a promise long before any of that in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent's head will be crushed by the Lord. Will be crushed by the Lord Jesus. And so we need to understand, this is, that's the biblical theology picture here. There's a lot going on here besides just some inconveniences for, for Egypt. And Exodus 8 ends just like last time. Pharaoh doesn't ask his magicians for help. He doesn't ask his mythological gods for help. He asks Moses to pray to God, to his God, to Moses' God for help. And And he says, basically, if I get relief, I'll let your people go. But when he gets relief, he doesn't let them go. His heart hardens again. And we'll look more next week at that whole dynamic of the hardening of the heart. But he he wants relief. He doesn't want repentance. And so plague number five in Exodus 9. Exodus 9, verse 3. Behold, the land or the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. So now we're moving to death. It was already kind of warned, I think, with the blood in the first plague, but now their, their whole livelihood is going to die. The livestock is going to die, and apparently not the animals in the stalls or shelters, because later there's going to be mention made of those. But all those that are out in the field die, and they all die the next day at the time that God says. There's no natural explanation for this. People try to figure out, was there some plague that had to do with all these other things, and then they start to die off. They all die, all of them, at the time that God set, but not a single one of the Israelites' animals dies. In fact, Pharaoh sends in verse 7, Basically, an investigative team to find out, is this true? And they confirm there's not a single animal of Israel that is dead. And so Egypt's livestock dying not only destroyed their livelihoods, it's showing that there is only one living God versus these idols that were as lifeless as the animals they represent that are now dead. These animals are lifeless, and the gods that were supposedly over them have no life and again, these, the gods with cows and calves in particular seem to have a hold on Israel even later at the golden calf. But here these sacred cows are now stinking corpses 
They're dead all over the place. They've got to take care of all these dead animals. All the fields are just wiped out. And they had gods. This was actually horns from livestock are, are, are probably the most prominent feature if you look at some of the gods. There was this god Apis who was the chief bull, but there's all kinds of bulls you can find in different places they worship. Their queen god Hathor also had cow horns. Phil Riken writes, Apis was a masculine god. He represented sexual prowess. Hathor was a feminine god. She represented glamour. He says, we can worship the very same gods and goddesses. When we're tempted to satisfy sexual desire outside of the bounds that God has given or to, to glamorize outward appearance, to, to place so much on the, the outward appearance for the sake of our inward esteem, to be consumed with what other people think of you and how you look. I mean, that's a temptation today. We might not call it that, but it's the same sort of thing. We, we look at celebrities, or you see social media, there's all kinds of things that can pull us in that direction. But those idols cannot save. They don't free us. They actually bind us. They make us slaves. Their attractions are temporary. And in the end, those who lust after them gain nothing but lonely, empty disappointment. If this is something that has a hold in in your life, This is something you need to confess. Confess it to the Lord. If you're married, this might be something you need to confess to your spouse or to confess to another mature believer to get help. But these idols are very prevalent in our culture. And we often need help in dealing with them. And and that's one reason we need each other and not to be alone, not to isolate But also, even just in the giving so much to the outward appearance, when the Lord looks at the heart, that's something that's so easy for us to to judge people by outward appearance or to give so much into the world standards of, of beauty and not what's really beautiful to God. We need to pray for God's help in this area. We might not be tempted to bring a golden calf out, but it's the same thing that can be happening in our heart. There's a final visual spiritual lesson in verse 10. So they took soot out from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air. And it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before God because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. In verse 10, God's servants stand before Pharaoh. But in verse 11, Pharaoh's servants can't stand before Moses because of the painful sore. It just hurts too bad. They can't stand. they got to sit down. Maybe they were like Job with the boils and sores. They're trying to find somewhere where they can just itch and scratch and just find some pottery. They just want to be away from people. And in verse 20, it's going to say, Some of his officials fear God. We'll get there next week. But they're sore. <laughs> they're, they're afraid here. Notice in verse 11, the boil judgment comes first on their occult magicians. It doesn't just say on all the Egyptians. It says it came on the magicians first and then the other Egyptians in verse 11. I think he's going after them intentionally. This is very clear. The gods they look to for magical power 
don't stand a chance. And there's something else going on. The Egyptian priests often would take ashes, and they would throw ashes, and they would sometimes say certain things, and they would throw ashes on people to try to bring a blessing. And and God is turning that very religion and superstition on them, and he's bringing a curse instead of blessing on the priests, the ones who were supposed to do that for the people. I think this is a fulfillment of Genesis 12, verse 3, where God says to Abraham and his descendants, the one who dishonors you, I will curse. They're being cursed here. And also, we know that priests prized cleanliness. If they had insects or bugs or especially blemishes on their skin, they could not serve in their religion. So God is shutting down their priesthood so they can't serve and so they can't even stand. It also reminds me of Psalm 1 that says, Sinners will not stand in the day of judgment. So again, this isn't just about back then. That's a warning to sinners. If you're not in Christ, you're not going to be able to stand in the day that judgment comes. But there's hope if you look to Christ and trust Christ that you can stand in Him complete. But there's no other hope that you can stand on apart from his blood, apart from his work for you. You can't trust in anything else. And, and this is a visual. What, what, what's happening here is he's taking the soot from the kiln. This is a visual thing. Pharaoh would know, I think, by this symbol that, that he's taking ashes from where the Jews made and baked bricks, because that's where the kilns were, where they had to make these bricks to make buildings in the boiling heat. He, he had made them suffer. He didn't give them any straw to make with their bricks. Now God gives him sores. We can't do anything. Israel's source of pain, those kilns and those bricks, now is becoming Egypt's source of pain as justice. And we need to remember, God is a God of justice. He remembers. And any sin that is not paid for by Christ will be paid for. And this is a judgment on the government as well as on their gods. And their very leaders are incapacitated. And so this would be a source of embarrassment also to Imhotep, who was the Egyptian god over healing and medicine. There's gods also like Sekhmet, who supposedly had the power over epidemics. And you would pray to Sekhmet to end a pandemic. You would look to her. And so again, these are the counterfeit gods. But we need to look to number two, the call to truly worship God alone. Every time God says, let my people go, I mean, we remember, let my people go, but that's not the end of the sentence. It's that they may worship me or serve me. Or he says, they're my son in chapter four. Bodhi Bauckham said in recent centuries, pandemics, pestilences, plagues, moved people to turn to the Savior. But he says, now in more recent years, people turn to the science. He said that in 2014, but if he was hearing it then, we're hearing it now. Trust the science. Put your faith in the science as as a God in the way that we're only to trust the Savior. Egypt feared. So they put their faith in their gods. When we fear, we're not to put our faith in, in the government. 
We are to pray for government, be thankful for government and and true science and, and all of that, but we're not to bow to experts who just promise us, if you do this, you'll be safe. Experts fail and get sick. Medicine can be good, but it can't become God. Medicine can be good, we can thank God for that, but it can't become God. And we're also reminded that leaders like to think and act like they're in control. Then and now, plagues show that they are not. This is also in in Christian circles. You can turn on Christian TV and you can see supposed worship services with counterfeit healings, health and wealth and prosperity are promised by false teachers. And health itself, though even in circles that don't buy into all that, health can become something we idolize. Medicine and science can be a good servant, but they cannot be the master. They can never be the Messiah. And whatever it is you're most devoted to or will sacrifice anything for is the language that Scripture uses of what only God should have, the God. And it's a God if you're not doing that to the God. And there needs to be a distinction in the language here, between unbelievers and believers and what they live for. So what about you? Is there a distinction between you and what you live and and what, if people were to observe you, see that life is all about and, and what it means to you? If Jesus isn't your Lord, that is the supreme one you Trust in and and treasure. You need to turn from whatever else it is and come to him in faith. Come to him who Pastor Corey told us last week. He he came to serve. The one who calls us to serve came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He's the one who calls us to serve and to give our lives to him in worship and in witness and so notice God calls his people to be let go, to serve, worship him. And he says in Exodus eight twenty two, he set apart his people. He set apart where they live so that they would know he's the Lord. He put a division, verse 23 of chapter 8, between his people and Egypt. What's interesting is that word division is literally the word for redemption. He's putting a redemption in. He is protecting his people from judgment Already, even though the the greater redemption is going to come, he's ransoming, he's delivering them from this judgment. So this ties it back with where we began, where we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and what? Ransom, captive Israel. And O come, thou, thou rod, and free thine own from Satan's tyranny. And we sang to come, And set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Jesus died for sinners and rose again so that we can stand in the judgment. We can stand in Christ by faith. And so that we can be set free. That we can be redeemed from past sins. From fears. From false hopes. From false messiahs, false gods. Don't just think of statues. Think of whatever you supremely value, whatever you seek first, whatever you serve before God. There's a song by Beautiful Eulogy that says, Whatever it is that gives that feeling that we can't live without, the joys we try to get that only God can give, 
whatever we most prize and are most proud about. These gods make promises to us but always lie to us. They say they'll keep us safe and satisfy us. When a good God gives good gifts, we twist that list and we make gods out of gifts. I suppose what exposes the worship in most of us is a close look at most of our thoughts, fears, and emotions. I prefer the immediate, and I exchange the true God for what seems more expedient. There's just some examples of how to think about this and apply it to us. Wherever that is us, let's repent. Let's recognize our temptations, things we're tempted to turn back to. And let's reject those counterfeits. Let's receive Christ, the Savior who satisfies so as we come to communion, let's truly worship the true God alone. Let's examine our hearts. Think about all those things we've talked about, whether it's economy, prosperity, beauty, or just what other people think or just consumed with what we think life is all about. Examine our heart, and we're going to sing one of the lines in the song, the communion hymn, Take the cup in reverence and new commitment make to cast out every idol and live for jesus sake if that's your heart say amen amen Amen. let's pray our great god we pray that you would help us you would help me you would help the young people here the old people here to recognize lord where we can be tempted to trust, to treasure things besides you. Purify us, Lord. Help us examine our hearts so that we would live more for Emmanuel. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.